Hello and welcome to the Film Pulse Podcast. This is episode number 320. My name is Adam Patterson. With me today, we got Kevin Rakestraw. Hey, Kevin. Hey, what's up? What's going on? Eh, you know, same old. All right. Just hanging out. Just hanging out on a Sunday afternoon, talking about some movies. Oh, hell yeah. Mind if I join? No. Cool. I implore you to join me. Good. This week on the show, we're going to be reviewing Sam Blitz. Bazawule's The Burial of Kojo. I'll be sitting down for an interview with director William Dickerson, and whose film No Alternative is coming out this week. We'll also be talking about someone watching on the watch list, going over this week's new releases in theaters, VOD, and Blu-ray. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, you can help support Film Pulse on Patreon at patreon.com slash filmpulse for just a dollar a month, and it will help us out a great deal. And before we get into things this week, I have to comment on the the passing of Agnes Varda. Yeah. What? I mean, first of all, I think that the the film world lost uh, a prolific figure this week, but also. We were literally just talking about her last week. Yeah, it's it, it's, it happens. Uh, I don't know if I want to say a lot, but it, it happens enough that we recognize it. That either it's slightly bizarre. Either someone that we just talked about when we're done recording passes away, or someone that we know we're going to be talking about going into recording, which happened last last week and with Larry Cohen. The weird thing about the Larry Cohen was that I had watched Bone the night before. Yeah. He had passed away. So it just very strange timing all around. However, it is still very sad to hear about uh, her passing. Watch some Vardas. Watch all Yeah, I mean all the Vardas. All We'll be recently. we'll be getting into it in the in the watch list, but I've been going back and I made a pledge to go through Cohen's entire filmography this year and started started going down that road. So no turning back. Let's talk about the burial of Kojo. As I said earlier, this is directed, written and directed by Sam Blitz Bazawule. I have a synopsis here. A man is trapped in a mine shaft by his vengeful brother while his daughter embarks on a magical journey to rescue him. This came out in limited release this weekend, and it is now on Netflix. A very strange Sunday Netflix release. Correct. Also, I, I'm, also before we get into it, I gave you <clears throat> a little bit about my uh, struggles in finding this movie on Netflix. Because, of course, log into Netflix, it's not there on the front page anywhere, right? So I type in Burial of Kojo. Nothing comes up. <laughs> Nothing. Denied. So I had to add the, the the to it. Once I put in the Burial of Kojo, it shows up, right? Okay, fair enough. Click on the little check mark to add it to my list. I did that on my computer. About an hour later, go downstairs, turn on the TV, say, okay, you know, I put in some foresight. 
when I load it up, it should be first right there in my, my list. It's not. It's not there. I don't know why. So I do the old search on the on the PS4, and I type in the B-U-R-I. It shows <laughs> up. It shows up with the I, right? But I was a bit too quick, and I added the A right afterwards. You type in the A, disappears. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I don't. God. <laughs> I just don't get it. <sighs> I don't either. It's uh, it, it should be noted this is not a Netflix release, so this is not like a Netflix original or anything. This was just put put on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's not one of their releases, but it's still very strange to me that yeah, it, it popped up on Sunday when when I I didn't I wasn't even sure that that was correct. Like we got an email about it saying it was going to be on Netflix Sunday. I put it on the calendar and everything, but I was like, mm, I'm not sure that this is actually correct. It seemed weird, but sure enough, it was there. And I guess this is the only, my only guess can be is that with the limited release theater release, they wanted Friday and Saturday, I guess, mm-hmm. to be solely theater as an option and then Sunday for everybody else. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, but usually what they'll do is they'll wait and put it out on Tuesday. Yeah. You know, eh, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, so what did you think of this film? Uh, visually, it's pretty top notch. I love the visuals going on here. And I think any time in which it kind of just dropped the pretense of, of having a narrative and just kind of went, like dreamlike just about that's when it was that's when it, everything was working all all yeah. cylinders were firing man firing firing all over the place like the opening with the uh well they, they actually went back to the same visual later with the like the sparks the shower of sparks you got that car burning in the of, car the, the flaming car you got the 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 pink smoke the upside down mm-hmm. shots, a lot of slow mo. Then you couple that with the music, like anytime it was operating in in that kind of configuration, it w- it was working perfectly for me. Anytime it stepped out of that and was kind of working in this this the the, the narrative framework, where it was kind of just more so not necessarily a straightforward movie, but you know a little more. Um, just less experimental or, you know, less, less visual. And that was the only time that I thought was a little bit shaky. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It, it did start to lose me at certain points during the, the narrative because it, it began, it felt a little plotting at times, especially like towards the beginning when they were kind of setting everything up and like when the brother first came back and I was just like, all right, I'm starting to, feel uh, starting to feel a little dry but I thought that the periodic visual flourishes the I mean you we touched on it already like the drone work was fantastic in this there's one scene I mean we already talked about a handful of things that were amazing there's this really great uh, drone I think it was a drone shot 
of her like just sort of running down the road and she's like she's like in white mm-hmm. and you know the there's like the green is just completely surrounding her and she's just like running down the road and it's just this really amazing drone shot and then like that was in slow motion uh for part of it and that just looked so incredible the upside down shots i thought looked really good too I liked all the upside down stuff that they did. Yes, especially the very first upside down with the where they introduced the, the crow man. Mm-hmm. He's upside mm-hmm. down on a horse, and you have this kind of like pink lavender sky. Like, there's a lot of striking imagery here. Yeah, they would also he would uh, periodically shoot things in reverse, so it would be like rewinding. So, like, be like somebody smoking a cigarette in reverse. And I thought all that looked really good too. Just it, and that coupled with the the really really great soundtrack, the really great score, uh, looked it, it it almost reminded me of Beast of the Southern Wild in certain regards. In some aspects, yeah, and I think that was the the the, the shower and sparks. Yeah, kind of made it, sparks. It it, but, but it all, sparks that it sparks that connection, and then it's difficult to let go of it. Yeah, I think that the music also sounded some at, at times, not the whole way through, but at times it sounded similar to to Ben Zeitlin's score in Beasts of the Southern Wild, and also like the the use of the slow mo, and also just the the general the general tone where it's sort of this uh we see it from this young girl's perspective and they there is this almost supernatural fantasy element to it yeah and she's you know she's trying which you know she's trying to help her dad and everything but to go back because we do this a lot with the synopsis it's it's interesting because what's stated in that synopsis doesn't transpire until like the latter half of the film. And then it's, all of that takes up about like maybe 10 minutes. Maybe <laughs> that's the thing. Like I'm, I'm reading about it and I'm like, Oh man, it's going to be this, like it's like this sort of fantasy dreamlike quest. You know, she's looking for her father who is stuck in a mine shaft. And I, and I was expecting it to be this sort of, you know, adventure where she's maybe meeting weird characters and seeing lots of sort of surreal imagery and stuff. But literally, I don't think this is a giant spoiler or anything, but literally, as soon as they find out that her dad gets buried, she pretty much, she doesn't even really have to look for him. She just goes to him. Like the the whole like, search to find the dad is very minimal and really it seems almost inconsequential to what happens in this movie yeah it's such a small thing yeah it it is it's just a tiny little morsel in you know the overall picture here and in the end, I was left wanting a lot more out of the narrative. I thought that there was, like, plot-wise, it was just so thin. There's just not, just just not enough here. I think that we have a, a kernel of a really interesting idea because 
the uh her her father and her uncle are setting out to do this like illegal gold mining which i guess is a really big thing in in ghana and they through there was something that happened in their past i'm not sure if i should I would, divulge I, what that is but there was an event that happened in their past that you know left the 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 brother with a grudge and he you know pushes him into a mine shaft and i think that exploring this idea of you know this this sort of very dangerous thing that people do for not a lot of money at the end of the day this this illegal gold mining i think that that's something that's interesting to to be explored but they don't really go too deep into it and they also touch on the idea that the chinese have come in and are sort of taking over uh, all all of the mining operations and stuff in the area and then like just destroying the land and polluting everything and that's touched upon but not really yeah dived in, into too which, deeply either which reminded me of black mother <clears throat> yeah yeah Instantly, instantly China, reminded me of that. China's just China's the new America, I guess. Just going around destroying everything that we have. You know, I guess we didn't destroy it thoroughly enough. China's coming in behind. <laughs> Finish it off. Finishing off shit. the the destruction of the land. But yeah, you're right, and it's it. It's odd to me because normally, with most movies, where you know, you kind of have this, like this movie, it, it operates in two modes, essentially. There is the, there's the narrative mode, and then there's the kind of like dreamy montage, kind of like music video style. And normally, I'm usually complaining when a movie just like, just you know, it takes a left turn into music video territory, does that for a couple minutes and then comes back. Cause it always feels like, like filler or just like, Oh, let's be cool and do that. And here I wanted more of that. I was like, I'm not really, I don't need the narrative thing. Like, let's just, let's just drop that and let's just get dreamy and do that stuff for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. Because I was I, I definitely feeling that. I could have done with more of that for sure. Because especially just just all of the like the folklore aspect of it with the crow man and the sacred bird mm-hmm. and her having to protect it and everything and the the up the in between where everyone walks upside down, like all mm-hmm. of that was just. I just I I wanted like you I wanted a little bit more. I wanted a little more exploration of these things. And I thought it was also a bit, um, a bit undercut with the, the, the telenovela that his mother watches where it's kind of just, it's the same. It's the the mirrors. Yeah. What's happening. Mirror. Yeah. And from what I, from what I read that that's actually, they made that for this movie. Actually, shot this telenovela i thought so because i was like there's no way that's a real show no they they made an original telenovela for this movie which i mean that's dedication but again it's like 
one, it's not there a whole lot. So I don't know if you had to dedicate that much time to it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it shows up like twice. <laughs> yeah. And maybe then, three times. Secondly, it's just a reiteration of the main plot. What's, you know, the theme that's going on there. It's just that again with different people. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate that they really love those there for some reason, but I also don't really think it was necessary to dedicate time to showing that and having it be a a parallel of what's happening in in the movie. I'm just not sure that's necessary. Yeah. Again, I'll just reiterate. uh, I think that the, the visuals in this were just so strong that that's really what carried the movie for me uh, almost in its entirety. Like the only reason that I, that I'm giving this a a light recommend is because it's gorgeous for the most part. There were some slip ups here and there with uh, mostly in how things were edited, but for the most part, man, it looks pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's still, I'm still, not a hundred percent um i guess adjusted to drone footage like i've seen plenty of drone footage where i'm like yes this is great love it you know that's how you use it but there's always that with the camera on the drone makes that quick shift to like you know the change it's it's focus either to the left mm-hmm. or to the right or whatever For whatever reason, that takes me like completely out of it. There was one drone shot. I think it was actually in the one that I previously mentioned where they like slow down the drone shot towards the end of the scene when they're about to transition into the next scene. And the way that they slowed down the shot, it looked really weird because the frame rate got really choppy and it looked a little awkward. Mm. And that was the only like nitpick that I had with how they did the drone shots. Because I also did get um, a lot of Julie Dash vibes because she does that where she kind of, she'll slow things down and kind of chop up the frame rate. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino likes to do that too. So a whole host of people. I mean, sometimes it works. It depends on the scene, but I think in this in this case where it was just like slowed down pretty much just to act as a, a beginning of a transition into the next scene, it it looked weird. Like it didn't look quite right. Mm. But I'm with you on the light recommend. Just I mean, based on the strength of the visuals and the, the score itself, those two things together, really. And I mean, it's only it's only an hour and twenty minutes, and it's not like the yes, the narrative's a bit it's a bit slight, right? There could definitely be a lot more to it, but it's not like the narrative is is garbage or anything. You know what I mean? Like it's it's decent enough, it's intriguing enough. Now there there is a lot of narration in this. What did you think about the narration? I I was I I will be honest. I was a little. Uh, a tiny bit worried at first when it kicked off and I was just like, Oh boy. But it seemed to settle in and work in the way that it, it felt like, and then it ends up, you know, finding out it felt like I was being 
like told this fairy tale. So yeah, it, it ended it, up working for me. Like it made it, sense that it was there. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing has this sort of fairy tale vibe to it, and I think that the narration worked in that regard. I didn't think it was. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was great sounding, but for the most part, I thought it was it worked. I do. I'm reminded of a very early scene, which he does grab you right away with the visuals. And I love when uh, the the couple on the dock and like the lily pads are lighting up with the music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff like that. That keeps it, keeps it intriguing. Yeah. I mean, right, right when that from the opening of this, I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to love this. Like I was fully, I was fully expecting to love it. And unfortunately it just lost me a little bit as it went along, but yeah. still, and I mean, it's, it's still okay. Yeah. It's still, it's still a recommend. And this is, again, this is one of those, I, I don't say this often, but it could have been, it could have been longer. It could have built on this. It could have made this, you know, like a big epic journey type deal. Right. That, that's what I was kind of expecting. And that's, that's, I think what I was hoping for. I hate, I don't like doing this in, in when we talk about movies, and I definitely don't do this when I write reviews, but uh, I think that it would have been better if they, the girl's journey would have been longer and she, it took her longer to find her father. And maybe she would encounter some more of these, you know, characters or the maybe had more encounters with the crow man thing. I mean, they, they, he, he could have turned it into this really sort of fantasy saga of like her trying to find her a father who's in peril. Yeah. And it just doesn't, it doesn't go there with it though. There's definitely promise though. I mean, I mean I'm definitely going to check out his next film. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, there's, there's a, a, a heap of talent here. So without a doubt. All right, let's give this a score. Uh, I will give the burial of Kojo a six and a half out of 10. I think I'm right there with you. And that is available on Netflix. Now, if you are in New York and LA, it is playing there as well in theaters. All right. So this weekend I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with director William Dickerson. He has a movie called No Alternative, which is coming out this week on VOD. So let's dive into it and have a good chat. William Dickerson, welcome. Thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Well, of course, I'm happy to uh, be back on your podcast. The last time we spoke was back in 2014, right before the release of your feature, Don't Look Back. And at the end of the show, I asked what you were working on next, what you wanted to do next. And you'd mentioned the movie that we're going to be talking about today. So you, I I know this was something that you had been thinking about for quite a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. First, I want to congratulate you on its upcoming release Thank you. and getting this made. And I think we should start with the, the boilerplate question for listeners. 
what is no alternative? Wow, that's that was a great intro, and uh, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, you're right. You asked me what my next project was going to be five years ago. I said this, and it it uh, it manifested itself. It's kind of that's kind of crazy, <laughs> kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, no alternative. It, it's a movie that's based on my first novel uh, of the same title. And essentially, it's about kids in the early 90s, specifically a brother and sister who, you know, are trying to make their way through, uh, you know, adolescence and just the raging hormones and potential mental uh, um, illnesses that they're they're starting to wade their way ways through. Uh, Thomas Harrison, 17 years old. He's determined to start his own grunge band after the suicide of Kurt Cobain, who was his idol. Uh, in fact, that's the reason why he picked up an instrument was because of that. Um, and uh, this obsession with becoming the next Nirvana, per se, blinds him to um, what's either the uh, mental collapse or eruption of musical genius of his little sister, Bridget, uh, who decides to reject all the, you know, trendy alternative music of the time and become a gangster rapper named uh, Brita B. So as you said, this is based on a novel that you wrote uh, years prior. So you certainly had a close relationship to the source material, aside from there being uh, biographical elements in the, in the film, that which we'll talk about a little bit more in a bit. So I would assume that it was a fairly easy process to adapt this to the screen and maybe what were some unforeseen challenges in adapting your book to the screen? Well, in a sense, it was easier uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, clearly the book was there, but it actually started as a screenplay first. Mm. Uh, back in 2007, I wrote the first draft of the script and I felt like it was exploring, you know, a period of time it, both in my life and in, in other people's lives, they were just really, really important to them. You know, the early 90s, there was this pop cultural explosion happening that no one really um, had experienced before. And it affected so many different people. I felt like there was a lot more to say about it. And the, the format of a novel lended itself to, you know, do that. Uh, so I decided to take the basic structure of the screenplay and transform it into into a novel, which is kind of a, you know, it's a, a looser, more stream of consciousness format. Uh, it's not as strict mm -hmm. as, as a screenplay. And that was very freeing for me as a writer. Um, and I really got into it. And it became my first novel. It was published in 2012. Uh, and then, you know, I went back to the screenplay. But but the, writing the novel informed a lot. It really helped me uh, not, only, not only develop the characters, uh, but also even like when it comes to dialogue, like, oh, you know, uh, I had expanded all these scenes and the backstory that was uh, at, at one point only in my head uh, was now on paper. So I actually, through the process of writing the novel, I learned a lot more about my characters and that really helped me refine uh, the screenplay when I went when I went back to it. So so, yeah, it was it was definitely, you know, having the book well, the process of writing the book and having the book there um when i was rewriting the script made the whole thing a bit easier and frankly directing the, the actors were a lot e it was a lot easier because uh um usually you know as a director you write up these detailed character biographies sit down with the actors and go through all the details of the characters and their lives uh but here i was like you know well you want to know about the character here here's the novel <laughs> take a read and actually you know it might sound 
weird or perhaps condescending, but uh, like Catherine Irby, she was like, she, she read the book and she's like, wow, you know, I know these characters inside and out. Actually, it really, they really appreciated having all that texture um, to, to kind of fall back on and explore before, uh, before filming. Yeah. I'm sure that it's a lot easier for them having that source material there. And, and, and like you said, knowing these characters inside and out, they don't have to make these sort of broad judgments about the characters. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're, they're already there. They're already written. And all they have to do is just embody those characters. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, for, for this particular movie, because it's such a it's such a character piece that was that was very helpful. And also there there's so many obviously it's 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 a drama and I, I take um I take a lot of dramatic license, but much of it is uh autobiographical. So, you know, I was able to really speak to how I actually knew some of these characters in, in real life. And that having that first hand knowledge also really helped me direct the actors in as authentic a way um as possible but also having the book there was good because because so much of this is personal and emotional uh and there's a lot of you know trauma involved it was kind of nice to not at times have to talk about it and and Mm -hmm. they were able to kind of do their own thing with with the book and it was kind of a a relief for me in a sense i do want to touch on that if if you don't mind i know that this is sort of a sensitive subject um but i i couldn't help but think about this as I was watching the film. So it, it is a fictional story, but the the character Bridget played by uh, Michaela Cavazos is yeah. based on your sister who Correct. did perform under the name Brita B. She was a rapper. And you said previously th- that the book was a, a plea for survival for your sister. Yes. But unfortunately in the time between the book and the movie, your sister passed away. And I was wondering, did this impact your approach to the film? Because if, if I'm getting the timeline, right, it it was in between the two. You're exactly right. Yeah. So when I wrote the book in 2000 or when I published the book in 2012, my sister was alive. I mean, at that point she had tried to commit suicide several times and she was hopelessly addicted to to drugs um, and suffering from uh, borderline personality disorder. And, you know, when I wrote the book, a part of me wanted the book to be sort of a wake up call for her, you know, because there's a character in it that commits suicide who's not her, uh, but who's close to her. And it's, you know, it's this cataclysmic event uh, in this family's life. And I thought, well, if she were to read this and see how something so terrible um affects everybody how how that terrible event affects everybody around around it you know she might think oh like that my my behavior is causing this and i should you know behave better but kind of in hindsight that was a naive point of view in in my opinion and since then i've learned that mental illness and and suicidal thoughts in particular are you know they're they're not uh, you don't decide to have them. They're they're intrinsic. Uh, I I often equate my sister's illness to to terminal cancer. Right? She, she I we all knew she was going to die. I mean, my my mother always thought always knew she was going to be burying her her daughter. But when that event happened, my sister died. Of course, it's still so hard to believe because she's so young, and there's this there's a stigma surrounding mental illness 
in, in the society and a general sense that people think, oh, we can just snap out of it, mm-hmm. people who are mentally ill, like we can turn it off. But no, you can't. I mean, it's a physical disorder. The brain is very much a part of the physical body. If, if you have a broken bone, you can't just say, oh, I decide my leg's not broken anymore. That's that's not how it works. And that I really learned a lot more about that specific idea after she died. And that really informed the movie part of it, just sort of the inevitability of death and suicide being something that many people cannot control. That's, that's, a, that's actually a physical, biological illness. Um, and that is, if, if anything positive comes out of this film, I hope it, it, it's that. It's, you know, the idea that people can look at suicide and say, you know, that it, it, it's obviously terrible and tragic, but it's a natural part of, of being a human being. You know, it, it, we can stop this, but we can't really stop it until we destigmatize it and treat it like any other illness. I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a scene early in the film that features Bridget seeing a psychiatrist and she clearly wants to talk to him. She, but instead of listening to her and listening to her problems and letting her sort of um, like expose herself, uh, he just writes her a script for antidepressants. And I think that this is one of the most important scenes in the film because not only does it expose Bridget's need to express herself and her thoughts, but it, but uh, what she later does through her rapping, but it also exposes one of the flaws in how I think we as a society treat mental illness. And while I think it was certainly a bigger problem in the 90s, I think it's come a long way uh, in how we react to mental illness and and handle it. Uh, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the the themes these themes specifically from the film and mm-hmm. it, and if it was an intentional statement that you were making regarding that scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's interesting that you would focus on that scene because that in the original script, that scene didn't happen until about 20 pages into the, into the movie, into the script. Uh, but in the editing process, uh, my editor had the idea of bringing that up to the to the front because thematically it, it says it all mm-hmm. in a way, yeah. right? You just get it out in front and, you know, you detail in the first two minutes of the movie, you know, we, we detail uh, who this character is, what she's suffering from and how society is reacting to how she's suffering. Um, so I, I, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, yes, historically speaking, it's very accurate because in the mid, in the early nineties, I mean, that, that was really the beginning of this just invasion of SSRIs, mm-hmm. like, you know, Prozac and uh, Paxil and Zoloft and all these new drugs, these wonder drugs hit the market. And one of the problems with having such a quick rollout uh, of those types of drugs without having any time to to um, analyze the effects of them, of uh, what happened was so many young kids, I mean, under 18, like, and, you know, my sister had been prescribed these drugs since she was like, nine, 10 years old. I mean, it's now you think about that and that's, that's very concerning. Uh, But what happened was you start to prescribe these drugs to, to kids whose brains are still developing, right? The the chemicals in their system are not um, 
as advanced as they will be as when they're when they're adults. And unfortunately, the drugs alter their brain, their brain chemistry permanently. So and I think most states in most states in, in America right now, I believe it's illegal to prescribe those types of drugs to to um, people under the age of 16. But it wasn't then. So I have no doubt that my sister was a victim of of that type of over prescribing. You know, it's kind of not only just uh, having the drugs, dr- those types of drugs available to people, you know, who are 10 or 11 years old, but this, my, the mindset of a psychiatrist to say, okay, well try this drug for a month. If that doesn't work, I'll put you on this. See how that works. If that doesn't work, I'll put you on this. But what they're, what they're doing, um, uh, unbeknownst to them, or maybe who knows, maybe some of them knew it was that they were getting them addicted to these drugs. Uh, and, and my, by the time my sister was finally diagnosed with borderline personality, uh, which can only be treated with um, with therapy. So you can't, and drugs really don't do anything for it. But by the time she got that diagnosis, she was she was totally addicted to, to drugs. She couldn't function without without these drugs in her system. And if she if she had survived, um, let's say she had survived and she had her mental illness under control, she would never have been able to get off those drugs, um, and her liver would have failed in about ten years just just by being on these prescribed drugs. Yeah. So. It's a it it was a major problem and it continues to be. But like you said, we're starting to become aware of those issues because we're we're seeing these casualties, like the, like the casualty of my sister and other other people who are prescribed these drugs when they were so young. Um, so, you know, and that is part and parcel with the idea of listening. You know, mental illness. Yes, of course, there are wonderful drugs that that if prescribed properly uh, and taken properly can can do wonders for people, right? But sometimes the drug is not the answer. Um, and I know in the case of my sister, she was kind of conditioned to believe, oh, uh, there's an answer to this. And the answer is a pill. If I take this pill, it will do this. Um, but talking about it and discussing it, she rarely did it because she didn't want to feel embarrassed. Uh, I mean, she'd talk about it to her, her doctor, but she just, she was just unable to talk about it to her friends and her family. And because feeling like she had to hide it, um, you know, that that actually did a lot more more harm than good. And I'm hoping that we still as a society, we still have a long way to go. But if we can start talking about it and being more open about it, as we are with other illnesses, say like a cold or, you know, an injury like a broken leg, then I I really think that a, a good percentage of mentally ill people will will just increasingly get better and uh, just have a just just a more normal, will be able to live a more normal life because they put so much pressure on themselves, self-imposed and pressure, pressure because of what, uh, what society expects. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think that a lot of, I, I think it's a double, it, it, it sort of should be taken with, you know, um, uh, attacked from two fronts, like the, the drugs, like I, I was never someone who was against uh, things like, Prozac and Zoloft and stuff. I was sure. I've was on Paxil for many years. Mm-hmm. Um and but I think that the other side of it is the the therapy side. I think that uh you need someone to talk to and I think that as you said just blindly medicating people is that's not the way to to, to go about it. These these drugs help on a on a medical on a chemical level, but on an emotional level I think that people that suffer from depression or other mental illness, they, they need someone to talk to about this and like bottling it up and never keeping it, uh, always keeping it inside is, is never healthy. 
No, it's not. And what what I try to get at a little bit in the movie um, is that when when Bridget d- decides to take this uh, alternate persona of Brita B, right, a persona that's just so far outside the spectrum of her normal life, that in and of itself is therapeutic. You know, that gets lets her get outside of her own head by by becoming someone else, right? Uh, and you know, I think that that perhaps can serve as a metaphor for you know, people who are struggling with mental illness, who feel like they can't be themselves. Why, why can't you? you? Everyone should be, but we're so, you know, we're conditioned to be so afraid of what other people are going to think of us. You know, God, God forbid someone should find out, you know, that we're, we're suffering and then they're going to, you know, we're going to somehow suffer, suffer more. But, you know, and I, and I got to see this firsthand with my sister when she, when she took this, this, um, you know, went out and, and became this rapper. You know, people were really into her stuff, but part of it was like half half the audience loved it, thought she was brilliant. Other half were kind of like, "Is this girl for real? Like, this is nuts." Uh, and then part of them maybe like, "Is she like doing this sort of like Andy Kaufman self aware um, uh, performance art?" And I, I think maybe they were all of those things. Yeah. But she, but she really enjoyed herself, and she in those moments she forgot about her own struggles because she was she was living the struggles of someone else. Yeah, this rapper. And I think that, that that metaphor really comes across uh, to, to great effect in the in the film. And I believe in my review, I even uh, likened it to a Kaufman esque performance. Yes, you did. Yes. And uh, I think that in a lot of ways, I believe that um, Bridget and and your sister were ahead of the ahead of their time with this because now we have a lot of these like alt comedians and stuff this this mm-hmm. big alt comedy scene that's coming up and we have a lot of these sort of comedians or like comedic performance art people that are out there and i, I think in a lot of ways she was just way ahead of her time with what she was doing and i i think that it was it was really great what she was doing Oh, cool. Well, that's that's kind of you to say. I mean, yeah, I think she, you know, and, and people, some people who do suffer from mental illness are among the most creative people, you know, I've ever met. Right. And I, I don't know if there's a direct correlation to how the brain works, um, you know, in, inside of those who are mentally ill. But she she was a, a credibly, incredibly creative person. She was a painter, writer, obviously a, a musician, an artist. Uh, and she was doing something that I'd never seen anybody do before. And yeah, it was the mid nineties. You know, I think it was like even before Eminem, either of the beastie boys, right. We're talking about like, you know, what white preppy rappers, Mm. um, you know, but, but it was also kind of a comment on that too. Right. She was very, she was very smart. Um, but again, unfortunately, you know, by the time that she passed away, just like most of those smarts and cleverness that they were all just, just ripped away by the, by the, drug use over the years mm-hmm. is you know terribly terribly sad so this this takes place in the 90s as we were talking about uh very shortly after the death of kurt cobain which ushered in sort of the the post grunge era i would say that that's probably when the post grunge mm-hmm. era started um and music plays a huge role in the film you cover the alternative scene but you also cover a little bit of the underground hip-hop scene with uh, what Bridget does. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about th- how you implemented music in the film and how you chose the the music that was featured in in the film. Sure. Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, music is a character in this in this movie. 
Um, I myself had a grunge band in in the '90s, and I there's a big part of me that never left the '90s. <laughs> you know, I have such <laughs> me an too. affinity. For, yeah, <laughs> right on. I have such an affinity for for that time, and I really think that that time informed informed me so much as you know, both an individual and an artist in so many different ways. Um, so, you know, I always knew that I wanted to tell a story that takes place in, that took place in the 90s. And because there's so many auto autobiographical elements of it, naturally, I went back to my life as a as a musician. The original music you hear in the movie, um, the Latter-day Saint songs, those are songs uh, that my band performed. Like we were, that's our name. We're, we're you know, we're, we're called the Latter-day Saints. We, we were called that that then and we're called that now. And those songs that you you hear were recorded uh, 20 to 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we kind of had a brush with, with fame. We came really close to to getting signed by, by label. And then it just, of course, at that point, we broke up and fell apart. And, you know, I moved out to LA to, to make movies. And, uh, but we always kind of stayed together and, and jammed every time I went back to New York, where where they're from, and kind of kept the the dream alive. And in a way, this movie has kind of brought us back together, uh, you know, because not only is that's an authentic slice of, you know, music from that from that time, but it's also music we've been playing for the past twenty years, and to hear it on a soundtrack uh, to the film is, is pretty amazing. Um, the the rapping. All the raps you hear in the movie are literally verbatim my sister's raps. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't, you know, I, I I didn't, I can't possibly take credit for that genius. <laughs> it's all her. And uh, we re, we re-recorded it with, with Michaela Cavazos per, uh, performing because, you know, my sister Brianna had her tapes and they were great, but they were very lo-fi and it, we'd had to, we had to record them more professionally. And I also knew I wanted to have uh, a nice, uh, just general soundtrack uh that reflected the music of the time. And we really lucked out. I mean, we, we had wonderful music supervisors uh, who helped us, you know, get songs uh, from Mud Honey, Sebado, you know, Lisa Loeb. I mean, incredible artists of that time uh, for like really, you know, not, I, 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 you know, I hesitate, hesitate to say next to nothing, but really, I mean, it was kind of, you know, they were all really on board and behind the project and, you know, ultimately we, we we left with a soundtrack of over thirty songs. You know, both you know original stuff, unknown bands, known bands, hip hop, uh, and all from that general time period. And it really works. You know, I wanted to the movie to be a time capsule for that period, but I also picked specific songs, obviously, for, that that work dramatically for those specific scenes they're they're used in. And we just you know got really really lucky. Yeah. Um, and I think that that works in the film's favor as well, because one of the pitfalls that I see in these movies that take place in the 80s or the 90s is that you you have these like these sort of tropes that, oh, like, oh, remember this? Remember, remember this yeah. band? And like you you throw in like the the various pop culture elements from the decade and then you use mm -hmm. that. And it it comes off as feeling like kind of kind of lame to be honest, like kind of yeah, kind of yeah. cheap and lame. But the way that you handled the time period, it was it felt very natural, very organic, and I didn't see any of that sort of just pandering, that like nostalgia pandering that tends to mm -hmm. to happen in, in certain movies and TV shows that take place in uh, you know the near past. Cool. Yeah. I mean. 
we we did we did pay spe specific attention to um uh to that right because like there were certain moments where like oh well oh i'd really love today by the smashing pumpkins for this for this uh um for this scene and even if we could get it the, there's the, the other part of me said well if we have today by the smashing pumpkins that's gonna then the scene becomes that song it's so there's right. so much baggage there um it's such a huge song that for a, a character movie about you know um unnameless you know kids in the suburbs that could be any suburb in america would kind of defeat the purpose and you're right when i hear you know if i, I if i if i'm watching a movie or television show that takes place in the past and there's a big hit song odds are that if those characters are unique and cool and in interesting they're probably not listening to that huge song mm -hmm. right it's just but but you the filmmakers are putting it in there for nostalgic purposes uh and to really scream oh this is from the 90s or oh we're in the 80s well you know i i think those choices are too too obvious um you know and these teenagers they they've been believe me they've heard today about the smashing pumpkins but they're they're beyond that they're listening to more interesting stuff right at, yeah. at this point yeah i mean especially with the the two main characters that you have in this film like these are these are kids who are probably into like really into zine culture and stuff like that yep. and like they're not going to be listening to the top 40 hits they're, exactly. they're going to be listening to the deep cuts you know some of the exactly. stuff that's probably been lost to time at this point yeah and in fact the, the probably the most famous song in the soundtrack is um uh lisa loeb song that we use and we, i specifically put it on the radio in uh in a car when thomas drives bridget to to school because that's the song that would be on the radio mm -hmm. right yeah. <laughs> they, they wouldn't be listening to it in their in their room or in the garage you know, so yeah, everything was really used. All the music was used as authentically as we, as we could, we could use it. And yeah, I mean, I think um, just all around, I'm really, really thrilled with the soundtrack and sort of an unanticipated bonus uh, from, you know, from this film is that we have uh, the soundtrack uh, being released on a, on a label. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. And it, 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 in fact, it's, it, it was selected by uh, record store day, um, as one of their exclusive vinyl releases. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Is, you know, super cool. So on April 13th, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Record Store Day, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, yes, for, for those out there listening who aren't, every or most independent record stores in the country and also in in the UK uh, release, you know, limited, a limited amount of titles that Record Store Day kind of approves. Uh, and it'll be on the shelves in, in indie record stores all across the country for three months. Uh, and they pick no alternative and it's going to be everywhere. I, it's kind of, it's incredible. I've been waiting online at, at record store days for the past few years. And to think that my soundtrack is going to be one of the, one of the records there this year is just like, I, I'm still having trouble. It. <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> it's that's, so that's cool. So, that's so great. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the characters. Uh, how much of you was in Connor Proft's character of Thomas? Yes. Um, well, I mean, there's certainly things closer to the end of the movie that are that uh, we diverge on mm -hmm. for reasons that if, if I were to talk about, I'd spoil. Yeah, the yeah. But but uh, I would say, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of me and him. I I was the drummer in my band. He's the drummer in the Latter in Latter Day Saints in the film. I tended to be the guy who was all kind of business and wanted to. OK, well, this is our chance to to do something with ourselves and you know, become commercial, uh, as was the guitarist who's based on my bandmate, uh, Liam McKiernan, uh, while the other two, the, uh, 
my other two bandmates were more specifically focused on just the artistic elements. So it was a kind of natural clash between art and, and commerce. The household is very similar. I mean, my father was a, uh, a Supreme Court judge. That's what Harry Hamlin plays. He plays a, a, a county court judge running for Supreme Court and very, very stoic. And, you know, my father was a Green Beret in Vietnam, you know, and he was a judge. So you can't really do anything in the house with, without him just literally judging every you know <laughs> every move you make uh and it was very hard to live up to someone <laughs> like that uh and the Catherine Irby character is very similar to my mom in the sense that um you know she's like a saint I mean just the, the neutralizer in the house is trying to make sure everything especially with my sister and her her, her illness um making sure that uh everything you know everything didn't explode mm-hmm. every five minutes <laughs> uh so the household the Harrison household is very similar um, you know, things are truncated and revved up, you know, a lot dramatically. Like we never got, you know, the, the fights between the band. I mean, theoretically, we got into similar similar arguments, but it never came to blows. Right. You know, we I, I kind of took everything uh, to the next uh, level. I I was aware of my sister rapping. I think and I in the movie, I wanted Thomas to be totally unaware and her her doing her own thing by herself. You mean, I mean, we didn't hang out with each other because we were, especially in high school, because I, you know, we were a few years uh, apart. But I knew a lot more about her rapping in in my life than the Thomas character knows about her in her life. And I wanted that to happen because later in the movie, when he finds her mixtape, I wanted him to really, you know, look at her and be like, this is my sister. I yeah. have no idea. Right. I wanted that moment to be. Yeah, there's a bigger impact. Punctuated. Exactly. A hundred percent. Exactly. It's like you can never. And I talk about it more in the book, but it's one of those things where you you think you're, you know, uh, as close as you can possibly be to someone, but they'll always be a stranger. You can never get inside someone's head. Right. Um, and I wanted that moment to be to be reflective of that. But, yeah, I mean, it's very it's it's very authentic. I mean, as far as like there, there's there are romantic relationships. It's funny because I had the the the, the Jackie characters. Uh, inspired by several different romances I had in my life. It's not just one <laughs> one girl. So I had my first my first love, my first girlfriend what, saw the movie in in uh, in New York, and you know, there's you know, at first she seems very sweet in the movie, then it, it takes a it takes a turn for the dark, and she was like, I. I was like, I hope you, I, you know, I hope your parents know that I was like the good girl portion of that. I wasn't the bad <laughs> portion of that. I was like, look, it's, you know, it's uh, we're, it's an amalgamation of a lot of other things, and there's a lot of dramatic license in it. So it's uh, it's been, frankly, it's been very nerve wracking for me to show this to people who I know because I'm constantly getting like, oh, that was sort of based on me, or that was this. It's like, well, and I don't want to say yes or no because I'm afraid to like, right. you know offend them yeah 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 (laughs) i can can understand that (laughs) yeah you have a really great cast in this i mean you'd you'd already met we had talked about connor proft michaela cavazos harry hamlin Catherine irby and then Mm -hmm. uh, chloe levine plays jackie the character that you mentioned and i I really love what she's doing i mean she's on she's great she's on the that new season of the oa that just came OA. out on mm-hmm. netflix uh what like last week or something yeah uh she was in the ranger which i really loved a really great horror movie mm-hmm. um so very strong cast in this how was it working with uh, a cast like this oh it, it was it was tremendous i mean you know i clearly you know seasoned 
veterans like like Harry and Catherine. It was, it was such a pleasure to work with them. And they were so kind. No, literally no egos at all. They were just super, super sweet and loved the project, right? And it was really just fantastic. And it, it, look, this movie was as indie as indie can get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they, they had to slum it for a week or so, and they <laughs> had no problems, really. And they had a great time. So that was that was a thrill. But I have to say, this young cast, there's something really special about kind of getting in on the ground floor with talent that is just starting to bud, mm-hmm. right? And these these actors are just fantastic. We, we spent a long time casting. Um, I'm based in L.A., but we shot in New York. So we used uh, the uh, casting director, Judy Bowman, who's, who's out of New York, to cast locally. And... It was about a two or three month process of watching self-tape after self-tape and auditioning. We auditioned people two to three times, you know, and we finally got to a point where I couldn't find a Bridget, a good Bridget at all. And uh, the the way I found Michaela was I'd shot a proof of concept video for No Alternative several years ago, and she had auditioned for it, but I didn't cast her. Uh, and But I thought about her because I thought her audition was really good. So... When we were in the midst of casting Bridges in New York, I couldn't find anybody. I was getting really worried. So I contacted her and asked her to self-tape. Would you self-tape this scene and send it to me? And she sent it to me. And it was, I, I swear, the best audition I've ever seen. It was, it was so great. And I was so impressed that I had to, I was like, you're coming to New York. We got to make this movie, you know. And uh, yeah, on set, they just so, you know, maybe it's the, the vigor of youth or something, but they were just so game and just so on top of everything. And the energy that they brought to the set was just incredible. It, it, it invigorated me. Um, and we had time, they were open to, you know, rehearsing, you know, we, we spent, we had a good week of doing read throughs and, and rehearsing before we even got to set, because we knew on this type of budget, we're not going to have a lot of time for a lot of takes, mm-hmm. right? If I'm, if I'm shooting, if I'm on, if I'm over take three, I'm doing something wrong, right? Because like, <laughs> we gotta, it's, I gotta figure it out. But the more time you, you're able to spend with the actors, and the, the greater the rapport that you can um, create with them, the easier and quicker it'll go on set. And really, everybody was just uh, terrific. And like you said, I mean, Chloe's breaking out. Uh, Aria, who plays uh, Elias, he's on, uh, he's on the CW show Legacies now. Oh, he's yeah. a regular. Uh, he's a terrific actor. He's blowing up. I have no doubt all these actors are going to be doing really, really great things and uh, and soon. Yeah, they're all they're all fantastic in this movie. Uh, you'd mentioned the proof of concept video, uh, and mm-hmm. I believe this was uh, this was a crowdfunded project, right? Yeah it it started in 2015. My, my sister passed in 2014, and you know, obviously after a whole lot of grieving i came to the conclusion like i you know if i'm going to do anything right now it's going to be this movie no matter what because i never thought i could make this movie on a on a tiny budget Mm -hmm. right it it, i would need a smallish budget but not a tiny nearly micro budget size um amount of money because of the amount of locations the amount of actors the time period right period piece Mm -hmm. is always more expensive but you know it it was uh it was something that i just decided to do and nowadays you can't even, you know, I directed three films and even having doing that, you, it's almost impossible to take a script out, no matter how low budget it is, and pitch yourself to make the movie unless you do what's called a proof of concept. It's it's just becoming uh, part and parcel with taking a script out because a producer wants to, you know, you might go into a meeting and, you know, pitch it, pitch it great. They love the script. You know, they, they love your vision as a director. 
but inevitably they'll say, well, how can I, how can I let my investors know that you can direct it? How can I put them at ease? Well, I want to show them that you can direct it by literally seeing a proof of concept. So what I did was I knew I had to do that. So I shot a, like a th- four or five minute scene, one of Bridget's rapping performances, um, you know, that I cast myself shot for nothing with my DP out here and launched uh, my first crowdfunding campaign, which I never wanted to do because it's essentially begging for money. And I, I hate, I don't, I don't know anybody who likes doing that, but be, because this project was so, was so close to my heart and because it allowed me a platform to discuss mental illness and, and to put a spotlight on the on destigmatizing it, I felt like you know what this is this crowdfunding would be great because you know people people don't necessarily contribute to movies; they contribute to people and to causes. And I knew I had a good I had a good cause. Um, so so we started that process and we raised a good amount of money. We raised about eighty thousand dollars on Indiegogo, but the best part of it uh, was that it. It, it it generated a buzz. Like people started to write about it, um, and people started to contact me saying, "Oh, I saw the crowdfunding campaign. You know, it was written up in this, or I saw this interview here. Of I would love to contribute, but I want to do more than contribute. I want to I want to uh, I want to invest." And so I got a few investors that who um, who found out about it through through the crowdfunding process, but ultimately came on board. Uh, as investors, and they put a lot, a heck of a lot more money into it, uh, but you know, would be participating uh, on the profit end of things. So once I started to get investors to bringing in money, uh, I was able to go to other private sources who, you know, uh, contacts I've developed over the years and pitch them the project. And since there was money already in the pot per se with the crowdfunding and these other investors, I, w- I was able to bring more. Uh, more money to the table, and we raised our budget that way. It took about a year, uh, but the crowdfunding was just absolutely essential in that respect. Oh, that's great! I we used to interview people every week on this show uh, who were in the midst of a of crowdfunding a film. So I'm always interested to know like how the crowdfunding process went for you. As you said, you went through Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. Did you, being your first crowdfunded project? Were there any, uh, what would be maybe some tips for someone who's looking to crowdfund their own film? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's really like a full-time job. Like, no joke. That's what everybody it's- says. Every, everybody, <laughs> I've interviewed probably 15 people that have crowdfunded projects, and they're like, you have to dedicate all of your time, like, every yep. day just yeah. to that project. It's it's absolutely relentless. Uh and, and some tips I can I can give. Well, one would be you, even before you launch the campaign, you need a good six months to build your social media networks, right? Because w- w- when you launch a crowdfunding campaign, who are you launching it to? I mean, obviously, to a certain extent, you can count on family and friends, but in order to have a successful crowdfunding campaign, you need to break through break through just those connections, right? And to do that, y- you need to build your awareness on on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I mean, those are the three three main ones at the time uh, that I used. And I spent a good six months just, you know, following people who had, who had similar sensibilities, uh, who, you know, followed other, or, you know, maybe organizations or other celebrities or other, um, you know, movies that, that, uh, 
were confronting similar themes, you know, things that had to do with mental illness and borderline personality, uh, the nineties and grunge. So, so I basically just, I became a part of these communities through, through social media and interacted with them for several months. And then because of that, my, the followers, my followers, um, grew, uh, and people were interested in the film. I started to kind of, uh, see the idea out there. So ultimately when the movie launched, there are people out there who I never met, you know, I mean, we're friendly through social media, but you know, I, I don't know who these people are and they were ready for the movie. And once the movie came out, then, then it started to be shared. Right. So that, that is a really important process. Now, I don't think anyone can just launch a crowdfunding campaign and without, without doing that. I think that would be a total mistake. And then when you, when you do launch it, it, like you said, it's a literally, it's, it's every day, every five minutes I'm on my phone, communicating, posting, you know, checking and re-strategizing and monitoring the, the, the process. Yeah. I think that that is such a good piece of advice because you have there, I've seen some crowdfunding projects out there that look really promising but it also seems like these people are just advertising or, or trying to market this into a vacuum where there's like nobody that's gonna see this thing yeah. and uh recently in recent years i've been getting like pr emails from people who hire pr companies to push their crowdfunding project and i think that that would be a viable solution too is to get mm -hmm. to get this project out to press and have them you know be keeping their eye on it i i think that that is like one of the most important things is to because there's so many of them out there these days yeah. that they can very easily get buried and i i shudder to think how many great projects never happened because they just didn't get enough exposure yeah you're right uh there's so many great ideas and potentially great movies out there but how do you how do you break through everything else? I mean, you have to be seen, you know, and I think crowdfunding is a very personal experience. People contribute because they're um, they're moved emotionally. Right. It's not an intellectual decision because you're, you're literally giving money away. It's not an investment. Uh, so you need to connect with them emotionally. So the two ways to do that, you know, first of all, you need, you need to find some sort of angle in your movie that can uh, connect with someone emotionally and you have to have already interacted with these with with people right because then then you form a bond with them or or at least the community uh that they're a part of and then they, they start to recommend you and you know it, it it just grows from there but yeah i mean i think that 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 is absolutely essential if you don't do that it's um unfortunately i think the project is is you know dead before it begins yeah let's plug your film a little bit more so it got picked up by Gravitas Ventures. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, I, I see Gravitas as a, a company who is a champion of the indie film. I really love what they do. And it's how's it been working with Gravitas in, in releasing the film? Oh, they've been great. Uh, in fact, this is the second time a, a movie of mine has been uh, released through them. They released my first movie, Detour. Oh, did they? Uh, way back when. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so I've already had, had a... And that's what's also cool about them. I mean, you know, uh, I, I have a pre-existing relationship with them. We've always kept in touch. And in fact, I've had over the years, you know, I've had some producers even get in contact with me saying, oh, so-and-so from Gravitas recommended I talk to you because you're, you're, they think you're a good director. So they're very, they're not 
they're not hands off. They're really into promoting the artistry of, of films. And, you know, obviously from a business standpoint, there's so many, there's so many more indie films out there that it makes sense to, to focus on these indie films and, and, and pick up a lot of them. Uh, but they're, they, they want to make sure that the movies are, are good. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I just watched their, their, the, one of their latest movies, uh, abducted in plain sight. That's their, their big documentary that's out right now that they, um, yeah, they distributed. It was really, really good. Wow. That movie was crazy. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, but it's, it's a great film and, and Gravitas, uh, got it. And, but you know, you don't you don't get lost with them because they know what it takes to make an indie film. It's not like a bigger company picking up your movie, and they're used to these big, huge budget films. They know what it takes to not only produce a film of this uh, budget, but also they know how to market them. It's very it's very um, you know the marketing is very grassroots. It's extremely you know there's a lot of data analytics that go into where it's going to be online. Mm-hmm you know, where to place ads, uh, where, you know, what platforms are going to distribute the movie through. And they have, I believe, the largest digital platform reach in North America. Yeah, they were, I, I believe they were pretty early adopters of the, like the VOD model. I, I yeah. remember them being like, I, like when VOD first started becoming a thing, like it was largely just like kind of, mm, I don't, I hesitate to say, trash but it wasn't like a lot of the vod stuff that was coming out in early days that was like day and date stuff was like not very good it's probably what you would imagine being like straight to vhs or straight to dvd titles and then gravitas came in and i think that they were one of the early companies that was like look we can we can make it work with like good quality movies and do this same model and then people will still be it's not like it's a the the a stigma behind the idea of video on demand and now of course you know you have giant movies that are like coming straight to netflix and stuff and i think that they were like on the forefront of that oh they totally were oh absolutely um yeah i mean they were one of the first companies uh you know where you could look at a movie that they're distributing straight to digital and say like oh that has cachet and, and that's a really big difference because like you said it used to be the kiss of death oh going to direct to vod or you know it was akin to direct to vhs or direct to dvd but now I, the stigma is almost completely gone and you know and that was one of the big reasons why we didn't the alternative we decided not to do a theatrical release uh because most i mean 99 point whatever of the audience is going to be watching it. Even if it wasn't the theater is going to be watching it digitally anyway. So why spend the resources on that, uh, at, you know, in the first place and, and just go directly to where everybody's going to be watching it. Um, and, and the film's been on the screen. It's been uh, premiering at film festivals across the country. And I've, I, I've been able to see it on screen a number of times. So I've had that um, experience, but nowadays, you know, Gravitas, you know, they, they distribute your movie and goes right to digital. That's a, that's a legit great release to be proud of. Really the stigma is kind of, just not there anymore and that that's a really great thing i I think so too especially you know i grew up in a relatively small suburban town that had just the main multiplexes and i was unable to see any kind of indie or art films at all and i think the vod really opened the doors 
for people who who live in these like non-metropolitan areas to to see really great indie and art films and they can see it the day they come out they don't have to wait like you know months and months and months until maybe they can find a copy on ebay or amazon you know buy it on dvd and i think that uh i think it's always great i mean we we always speak very highly of vod on the on the show and on the site and uh i I think that it's good it's great that gravitas is is putting out your stuff um it's coming out tuesday this tuesday right april 2nd that's right final question what do we got coming up what's what's next for william dickerson oh man wow well well, this is interesting because the last time he asked me this question, it, it came true. So I have to be, what do I, what do I want to do next? Because whatever I say here is going to yep, come true. It's, it's, it's prophetic. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> well, okay. Well, there are three projects. I'm, well, I'm, aside from the 24-7 promotion that I'm doing for this movie, I, I'm, you know, trying to carve out a little time for these three other projects I'm working on. Two, two are scripts that I, I wrote with my writing partner, Dwight. Um, you know, one, one has to do with Kurt Cobain, interestingly Oh, enough. really? Okay. Um, yeah, and and the other one is uh, it's a genre thriller. It's kind of a, a a ghost movie about a punk rock band called the the Diminished. Okay, all right. Um, you have my yeah, attention so, there. Yeah, so those are two that are ready to go. I'm, I'm approaching you know uh, producers right now, and then there's a another big project which I really wish I could talk about. That would be, you know, I did not write, but it was written by a, a well known screenwriter, um, and it's. Maybe I can say that it 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 takes place in the early '90s, um, and it's it's a world that I know very well, and I'm being uh, considered for director currently. So my fing- my fingers are crossed on that, and wish I could talk more about it. Oh, that's that's great. Well, I'm glad yeah. to hear that you're keeping busy. I'm glad to hear that no alternative is coming out, and there's a lot of buzz behind it. People are excited. I I saw it, I first saw it at when it screened at dances with films last year yeah. and I, I was very impressed back then rewatching it. Now I'm still into it. I think it looks great by the way. And I know we like, as far as the, even though it is an indie film, it still looks very great. Um, you know, a lot of times with crowdfunded movies, you have sort of, yeah, mm, Maybe a slight loss of quality there, but not not in this case. I mean, it it looks. Uh, I think it's probably one of your your best looking films to date. Oh, thanks it, a lot. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. We spent a lot of time on the look, um, not only because we wanted to sort of dial in the uh, the feel of the '90s, um, but whenever you're making a movie on on a low budget, you know, the, a kiss of death is is cheap production value Mm -hmm. right because it could so easily fall into the trap of it just looks like a friggin' soap opera or something (laughs) you know it just doesn't look good uh but my dp rob kreich and i we've known each other for for years i mean probably like 12 no more than 15 years by now and we've worked so we basically share a brain and he's really really talented at, at what he does and uh we spent we storyboard everything we know exactly what we want going out um and you know, we really strive to make the best looking film uh, possible. And I, 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 I hope we accomplished, uh, you know, a fraction of that. And he was your DP on all your other movies, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah we worked together. Um, we went to AFI together. We never actually worked together in film school, but after film school, all we've been doing is, is working together. In fact, he was one of the first, 
people to buy a red camera. So he's been working with the red forever. Great camera. Uh, Yeah. So he's an expert. He's an expert at the red, which that's what we shot on. We shot all my movies on that. Um, But uh, yeah, this was, we used the red and we used these special uh, lenses that were like six fifties or sixties Russian lenses that were retrofitted with um, these special filters. And I'm, I'm not being ironic when I say they're, they're called, Trump lenses, right? That's what they're called. Uh, this is before Trump became president. Um, but <laughs> I don't know why they're called Trump lenses, but we got it. We were shooting it during the election. So we kind of got a kick out of it uh, until after he won. And then we're kind of, you know, in a different world. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> but the lenses, we're able to, sh- to, what we were able to do is you, you can take out the back element and put in different shapes. And there was no other lens on the planet that can do this. And so if you put in, say, like a, a triangle shape in, in in the rear as the rear element, if you use a long lens and you focus on the bokeh, the, the light bokeh mm-hmm. in the background, uh, or let's say not focus on it, and you just see the bokeh in the background, it takes on that shape, which is really interesting. So what we did was for every act of the movie, we had different elements. Uh, so you you probably don't you're probably not noticing them as you're watching it, but the the idea is that it kind of affects you subconsciously as, as the movie goes along. We really wanted, we coded characters and character arcs with the, the changing of these elements throughout the movie. So we were very aware of what it looked like and, and how the look would hopefully affect the audience. Oh, that's great. William, thank you so much again for taking some time to talk with us. Congratulations on the film. And I hope to oh, uh, have you back you. on the show for the next project. I, I would I, that I would be thrilled to be back, Adam. Uh, I appreciate you know your words, and I'm glad you like the film. And yeah, uh, April second, it'll be available pretty much everywhere digitally and on cable. So uh, take a look. Thanks again to William. I will be putting this interview out as a separate post on the website as well. So if you want to just hear the interview by itself. Uh, You can check out the site. I'll probably post that up tomorrow. All right, let's dive into some of what we've been watching on the watch list. Uh, Is it? I can't remember whose turn it is. It can be my turn. Yeah, go. Go for it. I I saw The Wife. All right. The one, uh, this is the movie that Glenn Close got a nomination for. Didn't win. Got a nom. Didn't win. And, uh, if I had to pick something from this movie that would make it worthwhile to watch, like if you forced me to pick something, because if I got to pick on my own, I would say nothing. But if you forced me to pick, I guess I would say Glenn Close's performance. She's pretty good. She does a solid job in there. Uh, but the, the the movie as a whole is just, it's not good. It is, it's very tiresome. Uh, pretty much you can expect every single beat. You know what's going to happen just about. And it's Jonathan Price plays this author, finally gets the call that he's going to get the Nobel Prize for Literature. So him and his wife, Glenn Close, they go. And along with he brings his son, who, guess what? He's a writer too. And he desperately wants his father's approval about his writing. His dad doesn't want to talk about the writing. Because, you know, he's in the midst of winning a Nobel Prize for Literature, but the son keeps hounding him as to be like, what do you think of my story? And he's just, I don't know how old 
the son's supposed to be, but he acts like he's like 13 years old. He doesn't look 13. He looks like he's in his 30s. He's just an, <laughs> he's an absolutely pathetic human being, and he's really annoying. And, of course, there's that which has tension. There's tension between um, the husband and the wife, and that's because they have a secret. Mm-mm. And, yeah, yeah. And that finally comes to a head. And then Christian Slater's there. who's He's a journalist. And he's trying to get Jonathan Price to let him write his biography. And it's not happening. And he just keeps hounding the family because he's, he's finding out some information. And uh, it's, just, it's just very, very predictable. There's really nothing exciting to it whatsoever, either visually or within the story itself. Nothing surprising. Um, the absolute worst part is that they have these flashbacks to kind of show like the beginning stages of the relationship and like how they came to be. And they don't really help at all. So it just feels completely unnecessary. And they also look terrible. It's just a poor decision all around. And uh, it's just... It's just so, so mediocre. It's just incredibly mediocre. All right. That's what I heard. Yeah. It's just, no, no. And that is the wife. As I said last week, I was attending What the Fest again this year in New York. This is a a genre film festival put on by IFC. This is their second year. And I have a post up on the site that sort of gives a summary of everything that I saw there. I didn't see as many this year as I did last year. I think I ended up seeing like maybe seven of the 11 or 12 movies that, that screen there. Uh, I'm not going to go over all of them, but I will say that the highlights for me were Larry Fessenden's depraved. So it's been quite a while since he directed a movie. And this is, so this is like, I mean, he's produced a lot of movies since then, and he's acted in a lot of movies, but this is his uh, first time directing since I think 2013, I want to say it's been, been a little bit. And I think that this is probably my favorite of his, of his movies. I haven't seen all of his films, but I've seen a good number and this one is really great. It's a, Basically a retelling of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that's set in modern day in Brooklyn. And it's about this, uh, this war vet who has PTSD and he is working for this pharmaceutical company on a, a drug that sort of brings people back to life. And he experiments on this guy who is attacked one night while walking home from his girlfriend's apartment and he brings him back to life. And it's just about the relationship that these two have. And as he's like trying to teach him to, you know, be human again, and it's quite good. I really, really enjoyed this. I mean, this is like a micro budget movie, but he, it doesn't really show. He shoots, there's like a really long scene that takes place at the Met 
which is a really probably my favorite scene in the whole movie because when he takes him to the Met, he's just like overwhelmed with the, the art and the history. And it's like Fessenden does these like sort of overlays of like where you can see like the, like the synapses in his brain, like being rewired and connecting and stuff as he's learning and becoming more human. And it's just a really great sequence. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I do have a full review for this up on the site. Um, another one, this is one that a lot of people have talked about already. And I had the opportunity to see this last year at the New York Asian Film Festival, but I, I missed out on it. And I was super bummed because everybody was like, oh man, you missed, you, you got to see this movie. You have to see it. And that's One Cut of the Dead by uh, Shinichiro Ueda. This is not anything that you would expect. It is, it's a zombie movie, but it's about a, a director making a low budget zombie movie who gets caught up in a zombie attack while they're shooting a zombie movie, but it gets even more meta than that. And I don't want to give anything away. It is very funny. I mean, it's probably the best zombie comedy since Shaun of the Dead. And I I just can't recommend it enough. The places that it goes, it's surprising. It's clever. I I absolutely loved it. What's you you got to see one, one Cut of the Dead. One Cut of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I hope it comes out soon. I, I'm really hoping because, I mean, it played the festival circuit for quite a while last year. I know there was some kind of like weird thing where like it ended up on iTunes and it was like free or something. Like there was a, a weird glitch that happened, but yeah, it's hopefully it'll come out like in a proper form soon, Hmm. but highly recommend it. Overall. I thought that this year's what the fest was good. I thought that the lineup wasn't quite as strong as last year's, but there was some, decent things in there i did see a movie that starred shane caruth too i I told you that offline but oh yeah shazam that was uh (laughs) that's an inside joke that no one is gonna get by the way no shane caruth is shazam (laughs) in my in my world (laughs) i've i've locked that in as fact yeah he's he's in this um sort of psychological horror movie that's coming out called the dead center and he's he's pretty decent in it. The movie the movie's okay. The director, uh Billy Sinesi, he did a movie that I saw a while ago called Closer to God that I thought was okay, but he he does some really interesting things. He keeps his movies very like it's like hard sci-fi, so there's a lot of like really kind of deep scientific methods in it and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Shin Kruth also produced that movie, The Dead Center. Okay. All right. Uh, I got some other things that I can sort of rapid fire here. I saw The Legend of Cocaine Island. This is a documentary that's on Netflix right now. Uh, it's about this group of guys who oh, yeah. s- set off to Puerto Rico to find a buried duffel bag filled with $2 million worth of cocaine. 
mm-hmm. and what what happens the the craziness that happens along the way. This is really this is a really fun documentary. It's perfectly suited for Netflix in that it's it's pretty light. You know, it's a pretty light watch, but it's shot in a very fun, stylized way. It's directed by Theo Love, who uh, you may know from a documentary he did a few years ago called Little Hope Was Arson. And uh, it's, I would recommend giving it a look. This I have a review for this up on the site. I saw Castle Freak. This is um, directed by Stuart Gordon. I saw this on Friday night as part of Joe Bob's last drive-in on Shutter, which I am so thrilled that this actually got turned into a weekly TV series on Shutter. <laughs> I just uh, first, I'm happy for you too, but I also just love. I pulled this up on Letterbox just to see, you know, what Castle Freak is. And I just let the first couple words is John has inherited a castle. And I was like, of course he has. Yes. <laughs> that's what I wanted it to be. When you say Castle Freak, I was like, please tell me that someone just gets a castle. That would be wonderful. And sure enough, John just gets a castle. He does. He inherits a castle. Oh, and. And so John, the John that you mentioned is played by Jeffrey Combs and it gets even better. Yep. And his wife is played by Barbara Crampton. Oh, sweet Jesus. This movie is incredible. This came out in 1995. This is one that like, I've been meaning to watch for just years and years. And when they, when they announced that that it was going to be the next, because the way the last drive-in is they do, they're going to be doing two movies every week. So every Friday night, Joe Bob is going to host two, two movies. The first one um, was Chud this week. Nice. And the second, the second one was Castle Freak. And I, I learned that they're actually remaking Castle Freak. Barbara oh, Crampton and Barbara Crampton's involved. Uh, so anyway, loved Castle Freak. Had a great time with it. Very, very dark, very gruesome good stuff i also love that the last sentence because apparently someone else is in the castle and then the last sentence of the synopsis which is just wonderful to me an abused child (laughs) left to die in the basement who has now become the castle freak like to just say has now become the (laughs) castle freak like yeah every castle has a freak Mm -hmm. and there's naturally (laughs) Like there's a lineage that if you're there too long, that you end up becoming the castle freak. It's pretty great. You should, you should consider checking out maybe for Halloween. Oh, I fucking watch listed it, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? That dude inherits a castle and there's a castle freak in it. It's just not what I was guessing from the title. Yeah. It's, it's actually shot in a castle too. Uh, Charles band, it's his castle. Like Charles band bought a castle and he shot a bunch of movies there. And this is one of them. What else would you do? You know, if you owned a castle, you have to make movies at that point. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I learned that they, the cast actually lived in the castle too, during the shoot. That's the beauty of a castle. Mm -hmm. It's self content. You got housing for everybody. You bring in someone to do catering. It, you're you're good to go. You're golden. 
just stay yeah. there. That's a studio. And now you're just making Castle Freak 1, Castle Freak 2, 3, <laughs> the whole way down the line. Oh, my. I saw The Highwayman. This is directed by John Lee Hancock. This is on Netflix. It's the one with Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson about the the Texas Rangers who brought down Bonnie and Clyde. It's a pile of it's a pile of crap. <laughs> it's quick question because I have to know: Were you was this a day of cleaning for you? It was. I was working on some website updates, so I was doing other things while I put this on. I did not dedicate a hundred percent of my time Thank to this movie. So it was like one of these. Ah, I just got to put something on. It's bad. It's very bad. And I, I cannot, can't recommend this. It's, it's laughable. It's, it's atrocious. This movie, probably one of the worst movies I've seen this year. Wow. Uh, finally, I began my Larry Cohen journey, trying to fill in all the blanks by watching the ambulance from 1990. This is starring Eric Roberts as this guy He's actually a an artist for Marvel Comics, and Stan Lee is in this movie as his editor, and yes. he he's walking to work and he sees this this woman walking down the street. He decides to hit on her, so he's like chatting her up. He's trying to buy her stuff, and suddenly she feels like sick and she passes out. An ambulance comes to pick her up, and it's like an old ambulance. It's a very old ambulance and he tries to find her afterwards. Like he goes to all the different hospitals. No one can find her. So he starts looking into this. He goes to the police and he, he tries to figure out what's going on. It turns out that this sort of mad scientist is out kidnapping people with diabetes in order to carry out experiments on them, he thinks he found a cure for diabetes and he is trying to implant this thing in their spleen that will cure them of their diabetes. <laughs> but uh, a lot of them end up getting killed. And the, the, the secret lab that he has is, is under a nightclub <laughs> yes. and he keeps the, and he keeps the ambulance that he uses to kidnap people in the nightclub is like a, like a like a visual like centerpiece item of the nightclub. Is the, is it his nightclub? I think it's his nightclub. I would hope so because it would be I odd mean, if he's just parking an ambulance in the nightclub and the owner yeah. of the nightclub is just like, oh yeah, the ambulance back, cool. Yeah, I think it's his nightclub. I mean, this is a Larry Cohen movie, so there's a lot of doesn't question. Need to make there's a yeah. lot of questions. <laughs> there's a lot of really random. Like random conversations. Just first of all, I'll say that Eric Roberts is a perfect Larry Cohen lead because he just delivers those like sort of non sequitur, like just random lines perfectly. I mean, he's not, he's no Moriarty. But, no one is. No one is. Right. He, he's a pretty good, he's a pretty good, uh, replacement, I guess. And he has a wicked mullet in this. Oh my God. God, his mullet is intense. James Earl Jones is in this too. He plays a, a detective who likes to chew gum. There's this car chase scene where he's trying to chase down the 
the ambulance and for some reason the camera just keeps cutting to him <laughs> shoving more gum in his mouth over and over and over again and then he gets stabbed with a scalpel and he's still chewing the gum even while he's laying on the ground <laughs> dying god i love it did did you watch this on amazon prime no i i didn't um i watched this on itunes you can get it on itunes for like four bucks because i forgot to 100 percent look into it but i was last night looking through movies on amazon prime and i came across bone obviously and then i came across q the winged serpent mm-hmm. and i was thinking i'm like i wonder if they have they have a bunch they have a they few have of a them whole, like you know i think the majority think of larry have... cohen films on there yeah, I think they might have the stuff too, and they also have Full Moon High, which was the second one I watched, which uh, came out in 1981, I believe. And this is a comedy, a PG-rated comedy, so it's fairly tame. And it's it stars Adam Arkin as uh, this high schooler who it's basically Teen Wolf. It's a, about a high schooler who goes to Romania with his dad on business and he gets bit by a werewolf and he comes back. The interesting thing is, it, so it starts in the 50s, like the, the movie t- begins in the 50s and that's when he gets bitten by the werewolf during the big like communist, the, during the Cold War scare of the 50s and then he decides to travel the world so for 20 years he travels the world and then he comes back to his hometown in like the beginning i guess the 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 end of the 70s and like his high school has been completely taken over by like gangs and stuff it seems very racist this movie this movie is very homophobic and very racist okay and i uh it's not that funny. There's there's like uh, maybe a couple funny parts, but mm, I, I would say, I mean, I mean, it is very much a Larry Cohen movie. Like the the script is all over the place and completely random. But as far as the sort of goofball comedy, I mean, it's almost it's almost at a level of comedy where it's like. Um, you know, airplane or one of those, like it's mm, okay. It's a spoof. It's a, it's a spoofer. Almost. Spoofing. I would say, I would say it's pretty close to spoof territory. Cause it kind of going off of the poster. I'm getting, mm-hmm. spo- I'm getting spoof vibes. Yeah. You know? It's not very funny though. Didn't mm. really work for me. Ed McMahon plays, uh, Adam Arkin's dad in it. Yes. And he's, he's pretty, Funny, I guess, the scene when they go to Romania, the first thing he does is gets two hookers and tells his son to go go visit some museums. Oh, God. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I, full moon high. Mm, I, I, wanted, really. I wanted to go back to the, the ambulance because I didn't, because I just learned this. I did not know this. Um, but I guess at one point, Larry Cohen was attached to make a Doctor Strange movie hmm. and i I'm, I'm guessing that's why he has has an in with marvel and stan lee because i think it was even i could be wrong but i think it was in the 70s 
like late 70s, early 80s, I would watch the hell out of that. I wish that I know, that, that existed that, somewhere. Yeah, that would have been incredible. Larry Cohen's Doctor Strange. Could you Can you imagine? Fucking imagine. <laughs> oh, man. Ambulance is great. I, I could recommend that. Full oh, yeah. Moon High. Oh, I'm Full Moon High. Yeah. I'm 100% watching the ambulance. Are you kidding me? All right, let's take a look at what we have coming up in theaters this week. We got Shazam coming out. Shazam. Shazam. It's a fun title to say. It is. It is. This isn't horrible. I, I sort of I sort of enjoyed it. It'd be maybe a light recommend for me on this one. Pet Cemetery is the other big one. Ooh, all right. I'm pretty excited about this. Nice. I'm I'm excited as well. I heard that it's super dark, like darker than the original. So Which is that's saying something. Mm-hmm. Yep. The original's pretty damn dark. I mean we know that they bring back the uh the old the heel cut old Achilles cut because mm-hmm. you see that hints of that in the trailer. I'm just, I'm just wondering how do they vanquish their toddler son? It's a daughter this time, but yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Little toddler daughter. They got a <laughs> step in the neck. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm excited to find out though. We also have, the best of enemies this is the one with sam rockwell and taraji p henson no thank you no this one doesn't look very good to me based on a true story it's a cool story but the movie itself i think will not be too good high life coming out oh wow yeah very excited for high life 2015's high life Mm mm-hmm I think this it, is the new <laughs> one from Claire Denis with Robert Pattinson, it, Julia Binoche. It feels like she's made plenty of movies since that. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I don't think it is, but it just feels like it. It's just like the whole cycle of this movie, you know, press wise, died like three years ago, it seems like. Well, I know it played, I think it was the New York Film Festival last year, and I. Wanted to go see it. It was on my list, and then something something came up, and I couldn't see it, and I was really bummed. Well, guess what? Guess Finally. What? Guess what, buddy? Finally. Next weekend. Uh, we also have Mike Lee's Peter Lou. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. New Mike Lee movie. I kind of forgot about that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing Grace comes out. The wind, which is uh, a, is that the is that is that the horror movie about yeah. wind, the prairie winds? Mm-hmm. I get it because I'm dealing with wind today, and it's pissing me off. <laughs> <laughs> the public, which is the Emilio Estevez one, you know we we talked about this actually on. How it was on the podcast. I don't remember which episode or how it even came up, but we were talking about Emilio Estevez and where he's been. I think it might have been when we had Ryan watch Men at Work. Yeah, I think so. And I just happened to like look up Emilio Estevez and saw that he was working on this movie, and now it's coming out. All right. Wait, yeah, Emilio. It doesn't look half bad either. It, I saw a trailer for it. it. Looks pretty decent. 
The Haunting of Sharon Tate. We got Storm Boy. And that looks like that's pretty much it for theaters. A lot. A lot of stuff coming out this week. That's pretty decent decent, uh, slate of offerings there. Let's see what we have on VOD. We have Soul to Keep, American Relapse, Flay, Pet Graveyard. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Pet Graveyard. You heard that right. No Alternative. And this is all on the second. We have The Man with the Magic Box coming out on the fourth. That is a... um, Looks like a sci-fi movie. Sci- an Orwellian sci-fi thriller Ooh. set in 2030 Warsaw. Also on the fourth, we have The Mummy Reborn. Like the, the legit mummy? No. Oh. <laughs> I, was, I, wasn't a, I wasn't aware that they were rebooting that franchise. Nope. It's just another mummy. It's just another mummy. Born again yeah. Christian mummy? I don't think so. Judging from the cover, here, that would be interesting. It just says he has risen to take back what is his. That still could so, be. So maybe, yeah. Could be. Jesus as the mummy. Maybe. On Friday, we have The Haunting of Sharon Tate. We have Division 19 coming out. This is a sci fi. Orwellian. Is it Orwellian? Let's find out. It says, in the future, prisons have been turned into online portals where paying subscribers get to vote on what felons eat, watch, where, and who to fight. So, yeah, kind of. Maybe. That's actually a pretty uh, interesting concept. In the future, there's nowhere to hide. Sure isn't. Not even in prison. When the world's most downloaded felon escapes, the Authorities set a trap to reel him in. The bait is his little brother, who has so far managed to avoid detection. God. All right. I like. I like how what you said there. The synopsis doesn't really sound anything, you know, connected to the premise. We also have Unicorn Store. This is going to be on Netflix. This is the one that is directed by and starring Brie Larson and uh, also stars Samuel L. Jackson and The the Wind. And that's pretty much it for VOD. Let's take a look at what we have on Blu-ray this week. Man, tons of stuff. We're getting We're getting to that time of year where things are ramping up. Got Bumblebee coming out. Really surprised. With Bumblebee. Very, very surprised with how much I enjoyed this movie. Like, I think you would even like Bumblebee. Maybe. We probably won't find out for quite some time. And that's okay. I'm not... You know, there's like some movies that I'll see and I'll be like, Oh my God, Kevin has to see this movie. I would love for Kevin to see this movie. But this one, it's it's not one of those. So, I think if you did see it, you'd be like, Yeah, that was all right. All right, let's just go with that then. Let's mm-hmm. just say I did see it, and I was like, yeah, that was all right. You were right, Adam. Yeah, I guess we can. <laughs> Here we go. Close the book on Bumblebee. We got The Mule coming out. This is the Clint Eastwood one. Yeah, oh, gosh, shut up. We got Vice coming out. 
we have the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. There it that's is. one. Yeah. I, yeah, that's one I would recommend. We got Terraformers from 2016 coming out. This is a Takeshi Miike oh, movie. Nice. Hell yeah. Yeah. Arrow's putting that one out. That was one of that's one of his uh anime adaptations. I never saw it, but hopefully I will be taking a look at the Arrow release. We got Rust Creek from earlier this year coming out. Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. This is the one that was just released in theaters like I was maybe gonna, I was two weeks say, ago or something. Didn't the Nancy Drew movie just come out? Yeah. It's that one? It's that one. Very quick turnaround. Wow. Directed by Kat Shea, who did The Rage Carry 2. Oh, okay. Got The Pledge coming out. I'm sorry, just it's just Pledge. Mm. This is this is one that I saw at a, it was at a festival last year, and I actually thought it was pretty decent. Little horror movie. Uh, we have no alternative coming out. We have Patrick. Patrick coming out. Yeah, Patrick. This is a. Uh, it's about a pug. It's Patrick. Patrick. I remember getting a ton of ton of emails about this, and in, in in the emails, Patrick was always dressed in an, in a funny little suit. <laughs> oh, Patrick! He's so adorable. So much so that he has a movie. Mm-hmm. Why not? American Relapse is coming out. Help, I Shrunk My Teacher from 2015. You uh, mark that for Ryan? <laughs> yes. National Teacher's Day. That's pretty much all I have. What about Criterions this week? We have zero. Zero, huh? Zero Criterions, unless you're seeing something else. I think that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can send us your questions and topics to feedback at filmpulse.net. You can follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net and at filmpulsekevin. If you have a minute, take a look at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash filmpulse. Consider helping us out by becoming a subscriber. For Kevin Rakestraw, my name is Adam Patterson. We'll see you next week. Bye.